Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. And welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Robin and the Seven Hoods is over. It's time to kick out the revival. Quite a gathering, isn't it? Bleachers, flags, bunting. It could be any kind of a civic ceremony, I guess. A Fourth of July celebration, a Founder's Day, or maybe just a graduation. But then, these fellows look like they've already graduated. Why, of course they have. Graduated and got their diplomas as some of America's favorite entertainers. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Peter Falk. They're here not for a Fourth of July ceremony or a graduation, but for a cornerstone laying that is one of the grimly funniest scenes of their new movie, Robin and the Seven Hoods. On the main lot, on stage 16, another group of workers is arriving to start a day's work on Robin and the Seven Hoods. Yes, we said workers. You may think it looks more like the beginning of a party, but just wait. There is no one in any show or movie that expends more energy, skill, and artistry under more exacting discipline than the dancers. These girls have already worked grueling hours of rehearsal and will work more now under dance director Jack Baker. Meanwhile, back at the cornerstone, Frank, Dean, and the boys are walking through the scene they're about to shoot. Did you have a chance to watch the trailer, Andy? Nope. It's one of those great trailers. Those great 60s trailers. Uh, You will have had an opportunity to listen to it because it will have been just the thing that you just listened to. And it's wonderful. It's one of those look... Look at these guys. They're going to work, except for it's a, it, it's the women. It's the backstage, you know, hey, we're backstage on the lot. Look at these women going to uh, work. And it's not great. It's I did see I, I did see the behind the scenes featurette, which sounds like yeah. it featured some of that. Yeah, it's not great. Mm. Uh, although here we are. So here we are. We're in uh, movie three of our epic Robin Hood movies of the Robin Hood series. Uh, and this one, I think I, I you had never seen it, right? Had you seen that? I one? had never seen it. Nope. OK, I think we we're both in the same boat. We had never seen this movie. And the last thing, the last comment that I think I saw about this was from the good Ben Lott, uh, formerly of the Blot Spot who reported that he thought we would like this one because it is different of all of them. It's the most different uh, sort of telling of the Robin Hood story. How did it, what, what, why, why this movie? How did this one sneak in? Uh, Well, again, this is a series that uh, has a bunch of movies picked by uh, our Patreon supporters over in our Discord channel. So I think it was one of those ones that it has the Rat Pack. It's one that people were familiar with, and so they picked it. But I think it ended up on the list because it's one of those ones that is different. It's It has kind of a different vibe, yet the Rat Pack and you know the gang kind of took their own little, you know, version of retelling uh, Robin Hood in 30s Chicago gangland. And I, I think that's one of the reasons that this one does stand out as something different. I hope it will make it uh, even more fun to talk about because uh, it is it is a unique telling of this story. And uh, I, I got to tell you, it's better than than the Rat Pack's version of Oceans in my book. 
Yeah, that was a pretty um, uh, tiring movie to watch. All it right. was the bar better was low, than that. is what you're saying. The, the, the bar, bar was, was really low. low. <laughs> this one didn't have high to climb in order to be better. <laughs> all right, we're going to talk all about Sinatra and the Rat Pack uh, right after this uh, visit to the bank. This show. This very show that you're listening to is brought to you by, thanks to, courtesy of, audible.com. If you have never thought that you're a, a, a book bird, maybe you're not a reader. Maybe you don't consider yourself a reader. Maybe this is time you check out audible.com because Audible has those spoken word books. I have to tell you, Andy, this is not our pick. But I have to tell you, uh, Audible is doing these things right now, these Audible originals, uh, these full like dramas, dramatic uh, retellings of stories. And I listened to one uh, over my vacation that was fantastic. Can I tell you what it, what it was? I'm hoping you will. I don't know if you knew this, but during all the hubbub of uh, around the production of Alien 3, there was an original script written by no other than William Gibson, mm-hmm. written in 1987. And bless you, Audible, they have produced a dramatic retelling narrated by Tom Alexander, Barbara, Bar- Barbara Barnes, uh, Michael Bean, uh, Lance Henriksen was on it. Uh, it. Just a fantastic full cast reading of the original script as written by William Gibson of Alien 3. And the only thing I can say after having listened to it is, I want this movie now. Interesting. It was Interesting. that. It was that good. So, if you've ever thought about signing up for Audible, you can at, at uh, audibletrial.com slash the next reel. Uh, and now we have a real pick, Andy. You have you've you've brought up some uh, a, a real gem this week. Well, we're uh, talking about a film with Frank Sinatra, and it takes place in a very particular point in history that involves JFK. And so, the book that we're looking at this week is called Sinatra and the Jack Pack. Uh, This is a book about the extraordinary friendship between Frank Sinatra and John F. Kennedy, why they bonded, and what went wrong. That's right. There is a lot of drama in this book. There was a lot of fun hanging out, a lot of womanizing, a lot of mafia, all sorts of stuff. Um, You know, they uh, kind of go through the whole story of of both of these guys and how everything kind of fell apart in the early 60s. According to the book, March 1962, Frank was abruptly ejected from JFK's gang. You'll learn more about that and their whole relationship when you check out the book Sinatra and the Jack Pack by Michael Sheridan. AudibleTrial.com slash the next reel. Here's how it works. You go, you sign up there at that very specific URL, AudibleTrial.com slash the next reel. And when you sign up, you get to download the book that we just recommended, the, the uh, Sinatra and the Jack Pack, or any of the other, you know, many hundreds of thousands of books that they have for you there. Uh, and uh, if you like it, you keep the book, you get on a, uh, you can keep your subscription and get books every month. Or if you don't like it, you cancel your subscription you keep the book anyway. One way or another, you get a book out of this deal. Uh, a fantastic audiobook. I've been a member for almost 20 years, and I just love it. Uh, audibletrial.com slash the next reel. Thank you for supporting uh, this very show. You're the best. All right, Andy, let's talk about Robin and the Seven Hoods. I, I'm going to start because I look at this movie and I think, hmm, is it a con film? Is it a caper film? Is it a whodunit? Is it a musical? Is it musical theater, Andy? This movie has it all. 
every one of those things in here. I'm probably going to complain about this movie a lot. Uh, and so I wanted to say first, before you spoke, that w- while I am under the influence of Andy Nelson, I, Pete Wright, as of right now, liked this movie. What does that mean, while <laughs> under the influence of me? I don't know if you noticed. In my notes, I actually said whilst. Whilst I, I am I under the influence that. of Andy Nelson. So for that, that means for the record, in that's legal jargon. <laughs> I worry. I come into this movie worried that you're going to have uh, an outsized uh, impact on my opinion of this movie because you'll approach it very clear headed and practical and suddenly you won't like it. And then I'll have to rethink everything because I I'm see. so gullible. I see. So before <laughs> before I, I sway you with my yeah. incredible power. That's that right. That sways you on every film except for 2001. Except <laughs> <laughs> okay. What do you think? Uh, it was fun. It was okay. Um, I had just a lot of problems with the script. It wasn't as funny as it should have been or could have been. There was, uh, there were some interesting twists. When you look at the context of the actual Robin Hood story and kind of the way that this played out, I enjoyed some of the elements. And I think that they had fun kind of doing that. I still question who the Seven Hoods are. I'm not exactly sure. If there are seven or more or less, I'm not even sure why we needed seven. I don't know. But um, I I think for the most part, they clearly were trying to do something that they were going to have fun with. And I think, you know, they succeeded in some extent. It's not the greatest movie, but as, um, as Ben Lott was hoping, we would say it certainly is better than Ocean's Eleven. Well, it's absolutely better than Ocean's Eleven. I, and, and I think to your point exactly, this movie really looked like they were having a blast making it. It's absurd on so many levels. And there's some things that I think don't work because of that absurdity. And there are some things that don't work because they're shoehorning them into a structure that doesn't fit. Uh, so uh, I think I, I want to distinguish between those two pieces that, you know, the things that are just frivolous and fun and don't work, but and are clumsy, but they're they sell it, um, you know, and the things that that I think structurally the third act just falls completely apart. And this is from a movie that's only on three wheels in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> feel like yeah there i mean yeah two and a half wheels maybe i mean it's it's a little bit of a wobbly ride through the duration and it's funny that you say it looks like they're having fun on it um i mean i don't know if now is the time but i feel like maybe it is to jump into some of the backstory of this project sure uh, because this was a difficult film for Sinatra to make. And I will say, I really had a problem with Sinatra through the bulk of this film. I never thought he was having fun. He always seemed grumpy. And I'm like, why is he the character I should care about? He's just like, uh, you know, just kind of doesn't seem to care about anything and was just seemed kind of not like a character I would like. And I liked all the other characters a lot better than him. Um, I had that same issue with Ocean's Eleven. And I feel like I prefer Sinatra in dramatic roles like The Detective or uh, we haven't talked about it on the show, but From Here to Eternity, things like that. I think that he delivers better. When he's doing this comedy and he's trying to play, I guess he's trying to play the straight man opposite the rest of his his group, I just don't feel like he's providing any energy. He's just like this this really difficult character to to get into. 
Now, as I said, they had a difficult time with this film because they were making this in the fall of 1963. And as I alluded to uh, in our Audible recommendation uh, regarding John F. Kennedy, they were making this film when JFK was assassinated. And and Sinatra was a a buddy with, with JFK, and he heard the news. They were shooting at the cemetery of all places. This is a weird story that uh, uh, Sinatra's son said. It was a two-day shoot at the cemetery. The first day they were shooting, Sinatra, they were filming all the stuff with all of them around the uh, uh, Big Jim's coffin. And during uh, a break, he went over and sat on a on a tombstone to kind of have a cigarette. And he looked down, and weirdly, the tombstone said John F. Kennedy. And the dates were like from a long time ago. But he was just like, well, that's kind of weird. And then the next day, it's when they're shooting the scene when uh, Marion comes to the to the uh, grave and puts a flower on it. And he's sitting in his car listening to the radio, and he hears about the assassination of JFK. And he has to go out and they stop production. And it's just a very difficult time. They end up taking a two-week break. So it was a very difficult time. But it's just like a weird little moment there that they were filming at a cemetery. He saw a tombstone that had JFK's name on it. And then the actual thing happened. It was very difficult. But that really made it hard for him. And then later in the production, this was like a month later, his son, Frank Sinatra Jr., gets kidnapped. And he's he's uh, kidnapped for a few days before uh, that whole thing gets resolved. So this was a very hard project for Sinatra to make. And it almost didn't finish because of the difficulties going on uh, in just outside of the film. I, I, I feel like it's a little hard of me to judge Sinatra's performance so harshly, but I feel like when I compare it to Ocean's Eleven and I see that it virtually is kind of the same delivery that he's doing, I feel like it probably isn't that much different. I think that's just how he was playing this character, and I just I struggle with it, even though I, I feel you know that there is that weight hanging over the performance. Yeah, I, I get that. And I, I don't know if I'm uh, maybe too much of an apologist for his straight man role. But I think in this movie, because so much of the comedy and the, the frivolity of the movie hangs on, you know, Dean Martin and Bing Crosby, certainly, and Sammy Davis Jr. with a show stopping number, uh, you know, weird show stopping number about how much he likes to shoot stuff um, <laughs> I, that that I find like really subversively catchy. Like I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in it when he's tap dancing and shooting stuff um you know i I, i'm able to sort of wash sinatra a little bit i'm I'm robin washing um i don't think he is a great vessel for robin hood lore and i think that that might be uh, you know impacted by the stuff that as as you recount the stuff he was going through dealing with the weight of his friend uh, and the assassination the weight of his son being kidnapped i mean all of those things he's telegraphing i think probably pretty clearly through the movie but um you know if we look at at the robin hood lore and how well he's able to to carry on the the uh sort of cornerstone attributes of of who we've come to learn through fairbanks and at uh, all <laughs> Uh, I, I don't think he's I don't think he makes a great Robin Hood in that I continuously forget that he's supposed to be Robin Hood. Uh, and and <laughs> I don't forget that about, you know, um, Little John, for example. I don't forget that. Uh, uh, certainly don't forget that about Bing Crosby's Alan Adele. I think that's a really fun um, sort of homage to those characters. 
I, I think this is worth talking about because this is where I think they made some interesting changes to the story to kind of fit this 30s gangster world. Right. And I think it, it's interesting because Robin Robbo, I should say, isn't really like by the time. So he is a gangster. I mean, he's just straight up a gangster. He's he and his men are just in it, I mean, I shouldn't, I don't know, gangster, is that the right it's word? It's hard because, he, it, you know, if you look at these, at, at the interpretation of who Robin Hood was in, you know, in English lore, could you have classified him as a thug, right? Like, uh, from certain perspectives, he well, might have been. Okay, but, but you have to, well, no, I don't, I think that he became one. Right. But he wasn't like he was. I don't know what was he a lord or a, not a right. lord, but he was just like a Lord a great, Robin of Luxley. Yeah. So. He's, yeah. So he was a a person who was of some stature mm-hmm. and uh, who was a good person. And, uh, you know, he helped the king and he ended up uh, going off to war. And then he kind of got tied into this whole thing and he became a thief so that he could help the people because he basically like who's the worst thief and and so he became a thief to outwit the thievery of the prince and that's kind of the the way the story works in this particular case little john i guess uh was the um is it little john big john i don't know why i was calling him big john but anyway he um he gets killed right away and then and which i thought was interesting but we have robin who no, it's, Robo, it's not little john it's big jim Big Jim. Gosh, Big I, mean, Jim. I don't know. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Little John. Big Jim. Uh, Big Jim gets killed. Robbo is, I mean, he's, I guess he's a gangster, but he basically runs a uh, a nightclub where in the north, gambling in the north side of Chicago, right? Yeah. So that's, that's his whole shtick as a gangster is he just runs these places. Um, but against Guy, Giz- Guy of Gisborne, who doesn't want him running this because he's not joining up with the group and paying the sheriff and all this sort of stuff. It's clever the way that all works. What happens, though, is Robbo is never really a good character giving to the poor because of anything outside of his own need. <laughs> that's that's kind of an odd twist with the story is he's never a good guy. He ends up just like having his guys like just like, oh, just do something with the money. And they go off and they create this like they pay this orphanage and all this sort of stuff. And it turns into this whole thing really just to create goodwill for himself so that he's protected basically from Guy and his squad. And then later in the film, what I think is kind of an interesting twist on the story is they prove that Robbo really never changed. He never actually became a good guy, even though he had all of these different things. And and yes, you can say Little John and Marion are the ones who started up the money printing business in the back rooms. He kept it going and he was trying to shut it down only so that it wouldn't cause him problems. But in the end, they basically get busted because Marion and Alan Adale kind of take a turn and they become they find that the way that they can win is becoming joining like these League of Women um, you know, righteous groups to kind of stop this the 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 vile scum and villainy of the town of Chicago, <laughs> and he ends up with his buddies dressed as Santa, singing on the street corner. It's kind of a funny twist the way that all of that works, and I think to a certain extent, it's it helps kind of this particular iteration of the story work better for me. The fact that Robin Hood doesn't end up actually winning. 
And um, but I think what's interesting is that uh, it's it's really this whole change that they made in in him that kind of makes him a flat character because he's just I, I don't know I just don't feel like there's any real sense of motivation with uh, with the character Rabo especially the way Sinatra plays him he doesn't even seem interested in starting these things he's just like yeah do something with the money. And it just, I don't know, it just, that led to this kind of vibe of him just being this flat character. And even when we get to the trial, and I'm sorry, I'm just rattling on, but we get to the trial, he never even speaks. And I was expecting like the big moment where Robert gets on the stand and gets to talk, but he never does. Guy talks and then they work out a plan and the jury exonerates him and then he goes and sings a song. But I'm just like, (laughs) I don't know, It's it's such a strange little film that gives the character not enough time to be a Robin Hood of any sort. And so he just ends up being flat. Well, I think that's part of it is that they put so much weight on these other elements in the film and in the narrative to actually bolster who Robbo is. And, you know, this is as much a movie about the media, about public relations, you know, and I mean, it's a, it's about as much of, of him figuring out how to use publicity and goodwill in his favor. I think those are great points. And, and, um, and that, that, court scene is a terrific example of it, that it's it's weak in that we don't get one of those big triumphant speeches, but it's actually strong the other way around. It's it's strong in that we don't really need it. Like if it's making a statement about the power of publicity and the power of public sentiment that Rabo can be exonerated uh, by just people liking him a whole lot uh, and subverting Gisborne's, you know, sort of thuggish mental, uh, methodology, then so much the better for the statement of the story. And I think that's to me, that's part of what of the subtext of this of this movie is that we're looking at this character, this legendary character this of, of Rabo and how he's able to subvert expectations and get people to really like him and use that to uh, his advantage um, and uh, make people believe that he's something that he is not. And uh, so whether, you know, it could be Frank Sinatra, it could be, you know, a bunny traipsing through this this movie. It doesn't really matter. Uh, it just so happened that people people like Frank. Yeah, but again, the problem is that he does nothing for it. Like it's yeah. not even him who sets the whole thing into motion. It's his it's his hoods, it's his gang who kind of put the plan into place. And that's the problem with the film is it's just it never gives him a chance to do anything. Right, and right. As and to the that protagonist, point, yeah, he is. He's, he's so flat, and it's just it's really disappointing that he doesn't do more. It's it's frustrating. Well, and you can really feel that as soon as Bing Crosby is introduced, and Bing Crosby is great. I I really like him in in this movie. I think he's super fun seeing Grandpa you know, hop around with all the kids in their little hats. <laughs> I think that's there's some great little sequences. But you can really feel that the that's when the plot, right, the the sort of, uh, you know, the mechanics of the do-gooding uh, really starts. And Robin is gone. Like, Robbo is gone. Like, he's not a, a part of that at all. It's all it's all Bing uh, as Alan O'Dale. So, you know, I don't know. I'm arguing in favor of you, which is really disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a frustrating story. And that's, yeah. I think, my biggest issue with it is that the script was just not developed in a way that gave the character a chance to really do 
anything as the protagonist of the story. The story just kind of happens around him. And and then he is exonerated. He sings his song, which is a fantastic song. And then it gets into kind of that funky last act that is just like, I kept, I'm like, are we it's still going? Wait, what? What? Yes. It was, it's that movie should like, have ended after one cycle of Marion's mechanics. I and was getting a little was confused as to why over, that we kept coming back to that. Uh, yeah. Over and over and over again, and I I was exhausted by that at the end of it. Uh, I think that's a, a central problem: is that Marion, who is can you confirm never referred to as Fitzwalter? <laughs> she wasn't. She was. Okay. She only mentioned that her mother's maiden name, which wasn't Fitzwalter. I can't remember what it was, but uh, it uh, it was something like you know Simmons or something, yeah. and. Uh, um, so yes, that she we never did get a Fitzwalter. If anything, it would be uh, well, and we never get uh, uh, big uh, big Jim's name either. I guess so. We don't know what his last name is. Right. We don't know, we what don't her, know yeah. him. So know. anyhow, we I I feel like uh, Marion was just woefully poorly used and she's shoehorned into these sequences. I think this is one of those bits of the Robin Hood kind of lore that felt super shoehorned into this movie like they have uh, some sort of parallel character for all the others we must have a marion and then marion ends up being terribly used and uh, uh, uh terribly written and uh, maybe uh, barbara rush's performance was uh, you know could have been noteworthy for something else had she been handed a part that was uh worth playing but that whole thing, that whole backstabbery at the end was just unnecessary. We already had a story and it just became a lampoon. The one thing I will say about that is at least they were doing a twist on the character and they gave Marianne more to do than just wait for Robin to save her. You know, there was actually an interesting element to her character. It just wasn't necessarily handled well, but I did yeah. at least think, OK, at least they're doing something where this is a a you know, a character in this story who has motivations of her own, who is plotting and scheming and basically is just one of these, one of these hoods. And for that, I liked it. I just, yeah, it just wasn't, it was a very weak way that the whole thing was. Well, it's very weak and clumsy, Andy. Don't you think that had we had this central premise of her, like, uh, like, didn't it feel like it was just dropped on us in the third act that there's this major other manipulation that's going on like i feel like that twist happened way too late in the movie uh, we see her manipulating she tries doing the manipulation earlier with Robbo, who doesn't take it and and so we get a sense that it's that she this is kind of her thing um but it yeah it's it's a weird surprise that it kind of happens i mean i'm glad that she's doing it i'm glad there is this element to her so there's more to her but yeah it is a very kind of clumsy frustrating sloppily put together element of this story. That's certainly my issue with it. What'd you think of uh, Peter Falk as Guy Gisborne? I actually really loved him. <laughs> I think he is somebody who uh, made this movie a lot of fun. Like he ha was clearly having a good time. Uh, clearly was delivering a performance. And I think that he did a great job. I, I think where he struggles is where the script is weak because there is a lot of weakness in the script. I think there are some jokes that work really well. I think there are a lot of jokes that just fall really flat. And unfortunately, I think he's kind of stuck in the middle of that where sometimes he gets just fantastic jokes that he is able to deliver really well. 
and sometimes he's just you know he does the best he can with kind of the the slop he's given but for the most part i i just have a, a great time watching him I do too. Uh, there, there are pieces that, I, and I don't know. I'm not really a student of Peter Falk, uh, and obviously, I, I know Peter Falk from you know his uh, from from the show from Columbo. Like I, I know that I, I didn't watch a lot of Columbo, uh, but enough to kind of get his shtick. It was fun to see him this young, and to see how aggressively. Uh, character caricatured he already is he's like a caricature of himself <laughs> right of and and uh it was fun to watch him here and just sort of project how he softens this character over the course of decades between here and say princess bride you know uh, where he's really the same guy like i feel like we just watch guy gisborne walk in and start reading a story to to you know. <laughs> Uh, his, or his or murder by death, or murder by death, the, right, you know, right, the, right. Kind of the detective. You can see that lineage kind of going through yeah. these characters and how they exactly, all connect. Exactly, so. exactly. And so he's yeah. very much one of those actors, and I I, I really like him uh, in this role. He's one of those that I think again allows me to Robin wash Sinatra. Like he's just he's fun. He's fun uh, on on screen. So I'm in favor. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you look at, at the other Rat Pack guys, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. I think they are clearly having fun. They have energy and they bring excitement to the story. And that's what we need in a story like this, that fun time. I think that it struggles. Uh, there's there's that. I, and I don't know if it's the writer. Uh, you know, this was written by uh, by David R. Schwartz. I don't know if it's him as a screenwriter or just the way stuff was delivered. But sometimes the comedy, I'm like, I'm not sure if this is supposed to laugh or supposed to be funny or why I'm supposed to be laughing. Um, you know, but I can tell they're thinking it's supposed to be funny. Like, here's an example. The funeral. We have them talking at at Big, big uh, Jim's funeral. And uh, I believe it's Guy Gisborne who's talking first. And then all of a sudden, you start hearing this singing and they turn and look, and there's like a, a group of African-Americans singing kind of like gospel around a, a coffin that's just kind of a, across the parking lot. And these guys kind of shake their heads because they're distracted, and they keep talking, and then they get distracted by the singing again. And then Robbo starts talking, and then he gets distracted by the singing. And it keeps happening. I'm like, why, what's the, is there a, a payoff for this? Why is this funny? Like, I couldn't ever figure out, like, what what's this joke here? And there were moments like that throughout that I felt like if there was a stronger screenwriter here who could write jokes that would actually hit and make sense, I, I think it could have been a much stronger script. But moments like that would hit. And I'm like, I, this is totally falling flat because either it's referencing something from the the early 60s that I just don't have a context for, or it's something that they thought was funny and it's just not. Well, trying to play a joke, you know, it feels like they they kept waiting for it to be funny again. Like maybe the first time I got I chuckled out of it, it never came back around to funny again. It 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 was like this is the earliest Adam Sandler joke, you know, uh, yeah. and it just never came back around to funny. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know, and I, I don't know a lot of. Uh, and I, I, you know, I should I should say that um, uh, David Schwartz didn't 
write a lot uh, over no. his career. And so uh, I'm not terribly familiar with a, a lot of his early TV stuff. Amos and Andy, Alan Young show. Uh, he wrote The Bobo I've Never Seen. That was his last uh, film, uh, Sex and the Single Girl. Um, so, uh, you know, I feel like I should have seen The Bobo, Peter Sellers, but I, I never caught it. So uh, I'm just not familiar with how he writes jokes. And so maybe that's uh, maybe right. Maybe that's a cultural thing. But we should say, though, uh, Gordon Douglas, director, um, you know, we have talked about him and we've talked about him specifically in a context that I think we both really liked with the, the detective specifically. Well, he's a director who has worked with uh, uh, with Frank Sinatra, and they have a working relationship. There's a sense of the way they tell stories. He works with him again in Tony Rome and Lady in Cement. So a number of times he's going to work with him. He did In Like Flint, um, which I really enjoy. Um, I, I think that uh, he's a director who has fun with his stories and and I think he can tell a, a pretty decent story is he you know a, a Billy Wilder not necessarily but I think he can do some fun stuff oh he did he did them the giant ant movie which yeah. is a lot of fun yeah he, oh and actually I should say Gordon Douglas I think he actually got his start doing um shorts directing uh, short films with uh, Laurel and Hardy who I absolutely adore so he is a guy who knows comedy and knows how to kind of handle it. I just think in the context of the script that he was given, they weren't hitting the jokes all the time. Now, again, I don't know. Is you know How heavy was the death of John F. Kennedy weighing on everybody involved in the production? You know, was this a thing across the board? Still, I just, I don't know. Like in a situation like that joke I was just talking about, like, how was that affected? I don't know. It just seems like a bad joke. Yeah, I, you know, I, some of that stuff, it, it actually, I mean, you mentioned Laurel and Hardy, but the, the one that stuck out to me was Our Gang. His very first uh, mm. directorial projects uh, were Roach's Our Gang. And some of those gags felt like the gags he was trying to pull off here. And so I like them. I feel like they're quaint uh, if, if they're not just sort of out of place. Um, so I, I struggle a little bit with with some of that. Uh, but I, I do want to make sure that connection is clear that I think the the parallel between Frank Sinatra not being able to play a, a great comedic protagonist and, you know, Gordon being able to get one of his best performances out of the detective a few years later is not to be missed. I mean, those guys work well together. Yeah, but you'll note that the bulk of the films he directed with Sinatra were his dramatic roles, his detective roles. And I think maybe that is the relationship that they found stronger. And yes. and he was not directing the comedy roles uh, as much, like the Rat Pack films that Sinatra was doing, like Ocean's Eleven. And I, maybe that's why. Maybe Douglas just handles Sinatra better when it's a little more of a serious project. Yeah, I, I think that's the that that's the lesson out of this one for me, certainly. So I'm I'm interested to see a, a few more, but I'm not in a hurry. Yeah. Did you want to say anything more about old Dino? You know, I I, I think that this script kind of uh, the role was written for him. It just suits him. I I have yet to see a Dean Martin film that he's just not playing Dean Martin. Um, I know that he, I want to say that there's something that I'm forgetting, 
right now. But for the most part, like when I'm watching these sorts of Rat Pack films, he's very much just the womanizing, the smooth talking guy who just kind of loves his women, loves his booze and uh, all of that. Rio Bravo is the film that I'm thinking of where he, I think, gives a little bit more of a different uh, performance. But I think, um, uh, you know, I I have fun with him. And I think the reason that I have fun with him is because he's clearly having fun. And yet, you know, his role, you couldn't really play it necessarily today. He's a, It's a little too much not going to work that well in the, kind of the, the hashtag Me Too world. But it still is, you know, I like him. And he's a very likable character who's just kind of just, you know, he he doesn't take anything too seriously. And even with the odd turn at the end where all of a sudden he's now double-crossing Robbo, but then at the last minute he's back on his side. It was very sloppy. But still, it, I find it easy to forgive him because it's just like, eh, it's Dean Martin. Yeah, I uh, I really like him and I, I think I... Um... Uh, it, it's a little bit frustrating to watch him because as soon as, um, you know, Bing Crosby comes in, I, I feel like I feel like we lose Dino a little bit. You know, he's just kind of the big guy and standing there and he does a couple of numbers. But at, and, until he comes back at the end is the first and most manipulatable. <laughs> oh, that's kind of sad. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sad misuse. But uh, but, uh, you know, I like seeing him, him on screen. So. And we have to give credit to the storytellers here because the the brilliant way that they they updated the meeting of Robin Hood and Little John, where before we had the uh, the quarterstaff where they're trying to cross the little um, log bridge and they have the the battle with the quarterstaff on the bridge and Little John shows up Robin Hood and that's kind of what you know well he, what kind of convinces him to welcome Little John into his band of merry men. Here, it's such a great idea to have it be acoustic. And that the way that that played out, I thought was so smart. And, uh, you know, we kind of got this sense of that he's maybe not, doesn't know that much about pool. Um, but then, of course, it's a total scam. And he, you know, sinks every ball in one round. And it's just, it was a fantastic moment. And that was the sort of twist on the whole Robin Hood mythology that I really enjoyed with this film. Like they did a great job coming up with that idea and executing it. I could not agree more. I think that is a, a tentpole example of the way these character introductions are done so well. I, I would extend that and say the the other big sequence that that worked incredibly well for me is the the giant sort of merry men heist that goes on or the sleight of hand that goes on when they convert the gambling den into a church revival an underground church revival i think we get to see not only just what a, a amazing sort of um human mechanics of how they change all their shirts and clothes and everything and they're all bought in all the characters are bought in to help and support but the the actual physical stage mechanics as they transform this building underground in front of us, right? It's a beautiful little uh, uh, behind-the-scenes uh, caper setup that uh, that I think works really well. And of course, um, Crosby singing, um, you know, Mr. Booze uh, in this sequence is a riot. It's a riot for me. I just I get so much joy. It buoys me beyond so many of the gripes and quibbles that I may have. 
it's a really fantastic bit of engineering to see this whole thing come to pass. Again, it's unfortunately mired in some terrible scripting because uh, we have Guy randomly tagging along with the police so that he can see all of this. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure know, how I don't random know. it is. I mean, they've been working together the whole time. I know, but in context of you know what <laughs> you know. When a sheriff is doing a raid, would he bring kind of the bad guy along well, this with sheriff all his other cops? There, this yeah. sheriff, uh, there has been no question I, at all that this sheriff is in the pocket of the mob. No, like, I know this sheriff is, there. but all of his men, like he shouldn't be showing off to all of his men that, hey, yes, I'm working with this criminal. <laughs> Like, it's just, it was one of those things. And so, I don't know. I But also, just the fact that they're staring, like, so dumbfounded, like, well, where's everything? Like, I'm like, God, these guys are such idiots all of a sudden. Not only that, was, but then they start uh, singing along. <laughs> yeah, all the cops are clapping along with it. It was it was pretty silly. But you're right. The engineering of that whole thing was, uh, was really fantastic. It's just beautifully done. So much fun to watch. Um, almost as fun to watch them uh, as they, when they were both tearing apart each other's uh, places <laughs> earlier in the film. Uh, just all did the you, destruction. Do you get a feeling that, uh, let's see, it, Guy Gisborne's place was made of cheaper stuff than Robbo's place? Did that occur to you at all as you were watching? Um, I don't feel like it was. I just feel like there was a lot more stuff that got shot up because of the the um Sammy Davis Jr.'s number. Hmm. That's interesting. I, and I actually, now that I say that, I may have that reversed. I kept thinking as they were beating each other's place up with axes that in one of them, it all of the props were clearly made of, you know, styrofoam ply you know not it was very very cheap stuff breakaway stuff and on the other side they were like whacking away at some clearly solid wood furniture yeah and my hunch is actually now that i say that it's probably because that furniture had to serve as a set for to do a major dance number on uh oh yep yeah likely he had to stand on those things after they took a few (laughs) whacks at it and they didn't want it to actually be styrofoam don't take too much yeah, off not, of not it, too right. hard a whack at it but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, anyhow i thought that was funny right before we go uh, much further i do have to shout out to victor buono who plays the second sheriff of our film sheriff potts uh, we've talked about him on the show before in a couple films whatever happened to baby jane and beneath the planet of the apes um i uh i <laughs> He is a character actor who I just have a great time with. He's got a great face. Here he's got this, you know, hot cocoa addiction, whatever. (laughs) It's such a strange thing. But I think that he actually works pretty well in context of the role, especially the way that the sheriffs end up getting played in some of these earlier films. And so to that end, I really had a good time with him as the sheriff. Oh, I did too. I thought he was a blast. Uh, and I, he's one of those that he surprised me when he showed up in this movie, and uh, it just every time I see him, I I look forward to seeing him again. He was great, and he's such a buffoon that I absolutely buy that. Of course, he would let whoever in the mob wanted to hang out with him hang out with him all the time. I was just sure of it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> a note about Bing Crosby. A note about Bing Crosby, yes. Who is great in the film. I I enjoy Bing Crosby quite a bit. He clearly is still a singer and dancer. 
I think that what they the way that they work the scene style is really clever where he doesn't really participate. He's just going through all these wardrobe changes over and over and over again in really terrible outfits as Sinatra and Martin kind of sing the song. And then all of a sudden, Crosby comes out in his dapper, uh, dapper tuxedo looking sharp. And all of a sudden you see that's Bing Crosby. That's him. That's the way that he's going to, uh, like, now he's going to take over and show these guys what's what. I had a great time with that. But the point I wanted to make, which was interesting, is that he actually was not the person originally cast in the film. Peter Lawford was originally cast to play the role of Alan Adele. He had been one of the Rat Pack guys. In fact, I want to say he he was in Ocean's Eleven, but now, now Peter Lawford was a uh, brother-in-law to JFK. And as I alluded to in that book earlier— there was this falling out between Sinatra and uh, and Kennedy because Robert Kennedy was really getting concerned about Sinatra's ties with underworld figures and and kind of had the president change his plans when they're supposed to stay over at at, um, at I don't know at Sinatra's place something like that and uh, Sinatra that kind of created this whole falling out and so. Because of that, Lawford got um, ostracized and was not allowed to be in the Rat Pack anymore. Sinatra never talked to him again and uh, and cast Bing Crosby in the role. So that's how Bing Crosby ended up in this film. It was meant to be. Granddad Bing. He needed to be there. It's all right. <laughs> yes, it was. I don't think I would have bought it if it was Lawford. Nope. Sorry about nope. their friendship. They yep. should have thought they should have thought ahead. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> well, it's just it's so funny because this there's there's an element of this film. This was a Warner Brothers film and Warner Brothers Jack Warner was really wanting to make a musical like all the old musicals and he just Warner Brothers was never as big a musical place as like MGM or uh, some of the other studios and he really wanted that and so he brought these all these people together to make this musical and and the music team that he brought here to kind of write these songs which we should talk about um and and kind of really kind of create this this old-timey musical and that was really his goal i don't know if it succeeded as well as he had been hoping but i think all of the pieces were there for it to have been close well, yeah, and that's, I, you know, some of the things I wrote down in my notes, it made this feel like Guys and Dolls, you know, I mean, as speaking of, right, I mean, this this felt very much like Guys and Dolls, and and uh, I I'm count myself as a fan of the uh, uh, film version of Guys and Dolls. I'm, I like that show. I think that show, that story does it better of the gangster gone good, you know, the the mall with a heart of gold. and, and Yeah, better written. Uh, it's much better written. Uh, but the music was really strong. I think the music is comparable in this show. It's catchy. It's hmm. fun to sing. It's fun to play. Uh, I wish it was, you know, with the exception of My Kind of Town, I wish some of this other music had gotten a little bit more uh, expansive uh, playtime. It's music that I would have to listen to a lot more to really connect to, because on on the first round, like My Kind of Town is the only song that stuck with me. Um, maybe the Do Batter song 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, that might be something that, you know, kind of sticks a little bit on the whole, the music for me was pretty flat. It didn't work for me very well. And so that, that's one element of it being a musical that, um, that disappointed me a little bit. I was really hoping, especially with the involvement of not just Sinatra, but kind of of the, of the, the music writing team that we had here, uh, that, uh, you know, have been known to write great music in the past. I am trying to find their names. I don't know why oh, I can't Sammy find them. Sammy right Kahn and um, Jimmy Van Heusen. Yeah. They are people who have written a lot of stuff before, a lot of great stuff. And this was one of those things where I just felt like these songs just feel like they're stuck in the 60s. I get a really hard time uh, feeling like these songs. Um, ever would have gotten past this. Well, I can you're not, you're not going to get a song like Bang Bang past this. I mean, that's just, that's hard no, to, no. hard to stomach. When you look at like, I mean, Ocean's Eleven a few years earlier, ain't that a kick in the head? In, yeah. in the head. These guys wrote that. Yeah. Great song. My Kind of Town is a great song here. Truly. But, uh, and they did um, Thoroughly Modern Millie. They wrote that too. And so I feel like they've done better before and after. And, I mean, I think that there are they're they're not songs that slow the movie down. I just don't think that they're songs that I'd really want to listen to outside of the movie. Pete, yep. This is a point where we should mention for all of our lovely uh, listeners here that we do have a Patreon page where they can go and support us if they are fans of the show. It's a great way to show show their love and uh, to show a little support. If they head over to thenextreel.com slash Patreon, they can learn more and they can find out all sorts of stuff like... The thing you're probably thinking about most right now is what would I give not to hear these ads and these special messages? Well, I'm going to tell you. All you have to do is sign up for for Patreon and uh, you won't hear. You get a special version of the show that includes none of the uh, ads that support the show. Uh, and that's, that's a little gift for you, an ad-free podcast experience. It's great. We love it. And sometimes we include little special Easter eggy messages just for patrons that are that you really will like. They get access to some of our extra channels over in our Discord group where we can talk to uh, they they can interact with other Patreon members. They really do. And that's some, where some of the most fun uh, happens with the Next Real community is hanging out with us over on Discord and uh, talk, sharing movie reviews, talking about uh, your favorite movies and defending your opinions on your favorite movies uh, in a fantastic way. You get access to uh, the live stream of the show. You can join us and watch all the behind the scenes uh, nonsense that goes on to actually record this podcast. It's a lot of fun. And, and we hope you'll consider it. TheNextReal.com slash Patreon. Thanks, everybody. Do you want to talk about sequels and remakes, Andy? This, uh, you know, so as far as the uh, sequels and remakes, there was a new version of this that was actually turned into a stage show in 2010, which really surprised me that it took so long because it felt like something that was born to be on the stage. It just really kind of fits. Um, however, there were a lot of other songs. It was weird because they took a lot of other Con and Van Heusen songs, not necessarily written for this film, but just other songs that they wrote, like Come Fly With Me and Ain't That a Kick in the Head. And they integrated them into the show. And so I think that's kind of an interesting 
way that they did that. And then they changed the setting. So it's no longer the 30s gangster land. It's now um, the Mad Men era of 1962. And it's about a likable gangster hoping to get out of the crime business. And a do-gooding TV reporter likens him to a modern-day Robin Hood. Sounds like they kind of took some liberties uh, with the story on their own to make that musical. It also doesn't sound like it went very far. No, it doesn't. It sounds like that kind of, uh, it ran for a month and that was it. Well, and that's, the, that is the disappointing part. This one thing I couldn't get my, couldn't stop thinking about. This thing belongs on a stage and yes. uh, it's too bad, too bad that it uh, didn't get any traction. It sounds like, uh, when they were making this film that Jack Warner commissioned Sammy Kahn and, and Van Heusen to actually write like uh, something like 20 songs specifically for this. And there's only like a dozen songs, if that, that are actually featured in the film. So there are a bunch of other songs that they wrote that never got uh, anywhere. And so it, it seems like a musical could take those songs and then integrate them. I don't know why they have to go grab a bunch of other Con uh, Van Heusen songs. Well, and you know, that is, uh, if, if there is a central quibble I have about the musicality of the film is that it's not enough of a musical. Like, it doesn't commit to being a musical, a piece of musical cin- cinema quite hard enough. Uh, I, three thought, or four I songs thought it was more than I needed. <laughs> <laughs> How to do an award season. Uh, this was, uh, kind of, again, not a big period of time for awards period. Um, it had uh, zero wins, but it did have six nominations over at the Academy Awards. My kind of town did get nominated for best, um, musical original song. And Nelson Riddle also got nominated for best score of music adaptation or treatment. It did not win either of those, as I was just alluding to. Mary Poppins, of course, was the song that, uh, or the movie that took that for Chim Chim Churi, as we discussed when we talked about that movie. And uh, My Fair Lady won best score. Um, It did get some other nominations at the Grammys. It got um, a nominated there. Didn't win at the Laurel Awards. Uh, didn't uh, my kind of town apparently came in fifth, uh, fourth place? Excuse me. And over at the WGA, uh, which is surprising to me that David David R. Schwartz was even nominated for a Best Written American Musical, but he was. So there you go. And how about at the box office? Did it did it make any money? This, you know, it's frustrating. This is one of those movies. It just does not have much information out there for its financials. There was no budgetary information anywhere that I could find. What I did find is that it was released June 24th, 1964, opposite Flipper's New Adventure, the second adventure, <laughs> but the second entry in everyone's favorite dolphin franchise. Robbo did earn back $9.8 million at the box office, which is about $81 million in today's dollars. It's a good take for the hood, but without knowing how much it cost, that's all I can report, unfortunately. All right. Well, uh, I'm... I had still had a lot of fun watching this movie, watching these guys bop around screen, uh, and I would watch it again. Uh, and I think that's about as high praise as I'm going to get it. <laughs> oh, it is better than Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> I had a, I had an okay time with it. It's not great by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I wasn't bored. I got a little kind of. Uh, tired of what was going on at the ending, but it's an interesting little movie. And I think in context of a Robin Hood series, it is a fresh 
uh, moment that we have here. So it's kind of an interesting one to kind of step into for for this round. I think it's time, Andy. It's time Ooh. for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies that Andy and I have talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in your show notes and you tap the word flick chart, you very well should be taken straight to this film where you can add it to your library and see how it stacks up against ours. First up is uh, before I even say this, you know how Flickchart gives you the movie posters? Yeah. But it's a variety of movie posters. It's giving me a Spanish movie poster. And in Spanish, Pete, it is Cuatro Gangsters de Chicago. Cuatro, meaning four. They, they, the number doesn't even translate. Like they're like, why is it seven? We don't know either. Let's just call it four. <laughs> <laughs> the one I'm looking at, I think, is French, Le Voleur de Chicago. Uh, the Thieves of Chicago? No, the seven. Yeah. It is. It, it is seven. Yeah. No, you, the numbers don't make up. First of all, yeah. there are like 60 of them. There are 60 of them. And <laughs> so even 85, when there are... Pete. 85 on Guy's team. <laughs> and only, 85. Uh, yeah, he does say it's seven on his, but uh, I don't know. I but have a hard I'm time telling, you, telling who, who they all are. As soon as you put them in a room, like there are some great sequences where it's Robbo and his hoods in a room. Like there is a discreet scene where people are not walking in or out and there are eight hoods. <laughs> Well, anyway. it's Robbo and the Seven Hoods. No, no, no. That's what I mean. There are nine people in the room or six. Oh. I, it's very rare. Yeah. Rare. Do yeah. we actually get enough people? It's very confusing. It's very anyway, confusing. let's let's get started. Robin and the Seven Hoods or 1974's Murder on the Orient Express. I'm going to take uh, some murder. I will also take some murder, please. All right. Robin and the Seven Hoods or the 1922 Robin Hood. I think I will take Robin and the Seven Hoods. I will take Douglas Fairbanks, please. Mm, all right. We yes. shall go to the mat. Yes, we shall. Or shall we go to the archery round, archery tournament? Nope. I'm trying to fit better. <laughs> yeah, nope. Anyway. nope. All right. All right. Here, here we go. go. One, One, two, two three, three, scissors. Rock. Oh, you crushed me. Sinatra. Robin and the Seven Hoods or Russian Dolls. Uh, Russian Dolls. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I'm not too thrilled about either of those. Robin yeah. and the Seven Hoods or The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Same for me. Robin and the Seven Hoods or Red Belt. Red Belt with a bullet. I will, I will take Red Belt as well. Robin and the Seven Hoods or The Sandlot. Sandlot? Sandlot, please. Robin and the Seven Hoods or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen? Baron Munchausen. Munchausen, please. Robin and the Seven Hoods or Christmas in July? Christmas in July. Christmas in July. Robin and the Seven Hoods or La Femme Nikita? La Femme Nikita? Nikita, for sure. That puts Robin and the Seven Hoods at spot 309 on our chart. 309 out of 412, which is about a 25%. Fascinating. I, mm. I'm not sure what I expected, uh, but I think I expected it to be a little higher than that. Uh, but after our conversation, I'm kind of surprised it ended up as high as it did. <laughs> I think that one win, that one win uh, actually saved it a little bit. Yeah, I how think did, so. How did it do for you? It did not really do well at all. It no. was one of those ones where 
it would come up against movies that probably are considered worse, or I would consider worse, but I would watch again. And when it gets to kind of some of those rounds uh, later in my flick chart, I end up voting more on what would I watch? What bad movie would I watch first? Yeah. <laughs> and so it really dropped to the bottom. It was 4,009 out of oh. 4,179. Which says it should be a 4%. And I know it's not, but that's, that is where, that's where it landed. Mm. Well, I, I had a, I guess I had the same sort of reaction, even though it didn't fall quite so low. Ended up at 874 out of 1096, which should, is at a 20%, according to the algorithm. If I was to uh, take that straight over to letterbox.com slash the next reel, this should be a one star out of five. I don't think that is accurate for me. I'm I'm sitting at a, a firm sort of two and a half, three star range with a like on this movie. I'm not sure uh, if you're going to sway me any. Uh, I don't know. I'm 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 a little torn on this one. I feel like I kind of enjoyed it so i want to say that i'll give it a like even though i had a lot of issues with it so i think i'm at a two star and a like i will be then a three star and a like and that'll give us a nice fine middle of the road average look at that look at that that. you know what you and i need we need a sandbox (laughs) we would build cooperatively it would be i thought we were gonna bury something no (laughs) (laughs) No, I go to I go to animals pooping in my sandbox. (laughs) That's right. That's where I go to. You bring up sandboxes. (laughs) Well, that's weird. (laughs) Way too often did I find uh, fecal deposits as I was building your sandboxes. Yeah, it was really gross. Awful, awful element of my childhood. (laughs) You're a you're a damaged individual. (laughs) Why are we talking about this? This is so gross. Andy, would you tell me where do we go from here? Uh, This will be a fun uh, hop, skip, and a jump. We are jumping into the 70s. We're looking at 1973's animated Disney film, Robin Hood, which is, uh, it's going to be a fun shift because all of a sudden, all of these people are now animals. (laughs) So it'll be interesting to see what what, uh, Disney and co. do with the story. I can't wait to see how they handle the assassination of Big Jim. (laughs) (laughs) Did we even mention Edward G. Robinson and how perfect it was to cast him Uh, as the gangster leader? What genius came up with that? I just The fact that it was Warner Brothers, it was a gangster thing, he was getting assassinated. I was like, that was such a perfect beginning. I loved it. It could not have been better. I absolutely with you. It was too fun. Uh, Anyway, this looks like a great uh, a, a great jump and uh, you know what happens if you don't like the animated Disney Robin Hood you go straight to hell that's the thing so <laughs> spoiler spoiler we're we're prepared to uh, to watch this next movie uh, uh, the other stuff we've been on our big hiatus uh, in July so we're just kind of getting back up to speed now that we are uh, uh, steamrolling into August here and we I don't I'm not sure that we even have our film board uh, film picked out yet do we? Have we even picked something out? You don't even know. Um, I saw a conversation happening yeah. about it. 
Well, um, be on the lookout. I don't know if a decision was made, though, yes. That's coming. I don't know what that is. That's coming. I can tell you that uh, uh, we are hard at work uh, getting ready for the next season of the Marvel Movie Minute. If you haven't listened to the uh, season one, it is complete on Iron Man. You should check it out. Search for it in iTunes or your Apple Podcasts or, uh, you know, Pocket Cast, Downcast, Overcast, all the casts. And uh, you can binge it today and get ready for our season two on Hulk. Uh, and I think... To be clear, the Incredible Hulk. Yes, not Ang Lee's Hulk. Not <laughs> You're right. You're right. Well, everybody, that's it. Uh, thank you so much. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon. Turns out a lot of people actually like this movie. Yes, it is very highly rated. 71%. Give it five stars. 71%. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. I went low. Mm. Are you happy with yours How at the top? How low did you go? Oh, I went all the way low. All mm. the way down. Nice. In fact, right. I have, I think it would be safe to say that I have one and a half reviews to share with you. One of Ooh, them, wow! One of them is my review pick, and the other, Andy, is a showbiz trivia element. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So, what do you want to do? Do, tell. You do yours? You want me to do it first? What do you want to do? Why don't you do uh, one, right. and then I'll do mine, and then, and then we'll do the other one. Okay, here we go. The, the trivia. Yeah. Uh, Rick says from August two thousand two, I finally watched this movie over at a friend's house. He loved it. I thought it was trashed, plain and simple. I've never liked Frank Sinatra for personal reasons, but if I put them in my review, I'm sure this won't be printed. (laughs) Dean Martin... (laughs) (laughs) Dean Martin and Sammy Davis, I never really thought as movie stars, but more like nightclub entertainers. I respect their work, but like all the other Rat Pack movies, this one sucks also. To me, it was just a stupid movie that made no sense, had no value, and doesn't contribute anything to the movie musical. So I'm sure I'm the minority on this, and I better not say anything, except that if you're looking for one of those blockbuster musicals, this is not the film for you. Do you think Sinatra's people still comb Amazon reviews (laughs) for libelous comments? I'm going to say no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or they, they certainly, this would have been. I don't flagged, know. He seems right? pretty nervous about it. <laughs> okay. All right. What's yours? <laughs> I got a five star. I went really high by Stephen P. This is a recent one. Also uh, watching All it on right. Blu-ray who said, got it for my wife. She loves it. Watch it like four times already. Great movie. <laughs> Love the older stars voices. Highly recommended for people who like Frank Dean, Sammy and Bing. My favorite part of it is the, the real lack of punctuation. Yeah, that run on. It adds a lot of texture. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So let me uh let me go back here to this uh this other five star and just tell me what you think. This is like uh do you listen to reply all? I do. This is like a, a yes, yes, no. No, no, yes. Yes, yeah, yes, no, yes, yes, no. yes, no. All right, here you go. 
It's called <laughs> Robin Hood and His Merry Men, M-A-R-Y. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <clears throat> I love this movie. I sleep with this movie. When I dream at night, I dream of this movie. I want to make love to this movie. <laughs> this movie is my life and soul. And if you're feeling a bit hungry, come down to Billy Bob's Pizza for the best pizza in the West. If the pizza doesn't satisfy you, we will. If the pizza doesn't satisfy you, we will. I feel like we just end on that note. I mean, what else do you say? Billy Bob's Pizza, everybody. I think we need to get our new show sponsor. Yeah. For, that's for, right. Uh, oh, that's wow. good. All right. Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.